Are we? Top notch. Before we begin, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, thank you for the gift of the Bible, a set of teachings and stories handed down from generation to generation, your holy word. We know that you inspired it, and as we begin to study your word this morning, may you speak to us. May you open our eyes and our hearts to your leading. Touch us with your spirit and help us to grow in Christ-likeness, we pray. To you be the glory this morning. Amen. Last year's census results showed a new change for our region. Historically, Catholicism has had a stronghold as the most popular religion. Last year, though, that changed to no religion. In the five years from 2016 to 2021, there was an 11% growth in this group. They went from 20.7% of people to 317 And for the rest of Australia, that number is about 40% of people. 8% higher again. So that means that for at least a third of the people that you see on the street, they don't identify as Christian or with any other religion. And as a nation, we're moving further and further away from God. And I find that quite disappointing. We reflect on the past, regularly thinking that it was better. Our movement, Churches of Christ, has such origins. It's part of the Restoration Movement. Now, this movement, in 1826, Barton W. Stone, one of its founders, summarised its purpose, and that was to achieve the restoration and glory of the ancient religion of Christ, the religion of love, peace and union on earth. These founders, Stone among others, saw the state of the church in their day, one that was split between Catholicism, Protestantism and other sects, and the diversity grieved them deeply. And so they sought to return to the pattern shown in Acts. And so there's no, no better passage to describe the early church than what we're discussing today in Acts 2, verses 42 through to 47. And by the end of this morning, I pray that we'll all be encouraged and have a direction for how we should continue together as a church family. And perhaps we'll also see that today's church can still be fruitful and faithful to the teachings of Jesus and his closest followers. So before we look at the text today, I'll provide a little context. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus has just been crucified and he's risen again. And after advising the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the arrival of the Holy Spirit, he ascended and was lifted up into heaven until he comes again. And we look forward to that day, don't we? About 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, so 50 days after the Passover and uh, Christ's crucifixion, the Spirit arrives and each follower is indwelt. The Spirit came to live inside of them. And so this same Spirit empowers God's people to preach God's word in order to proclaim God's gospel. And as they do this, the Spirit brings others to repentance and faith and grows God's church. Through Peter's preaching and the miracle of tongues, 3,000 people received Christ and were baptised into the new movement. 
And so our text today describes how this movement continued from that day. So, from verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The first thing noted here is that they, being the Christian movement, devoted themselves. Now, what does that mean? The modern idea of devotion hints at a profound dedication, often includes a level of observance, such as religious worship and prayer. The Greek terminology, though, is always deeper. Human language tends to get simpler as time progresses. Think about the texting culture in LOL. We slowly but surely just lose a bit of meaning. So the Greek, the Greek term used here is proskar terentes, bit of a mouthful. You can see why it gets simpler. It involves a level of adherence and constance to be steadfastly attentive towards a certain direction or cause. It involves giving unremitting care. There is perseverance. These people are vigilant with a strong sense of continued ongoing commitment. So most translations, like the one we've used today, use devoted themselves. The message paraphrase uses the term committed and the New King James uses the words continued steadfastly. For us today, it's probably just easier to understand the idea as this unrelenting commitment. And so, they unrelentingly committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this, this verse involves four aspects that the early church unrelentingly committed themselves to. Firstly, the apostles' teaching. Secondly, the fellowship. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. And finally, to prayer. And the verses that follow, follow they form a, uh, an elaboration or a commentary on these four markers of the Christian church. So we continue from verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Earlier in Acts, we read that a great sound from heaven came, and the Holy Spirit appeared on the disciples as tongues of fire. They began to speak other languages as the Spirit enabled them to do so. And hearing the noise, a great multitude gathered, and their response was not surprising. You must be drunk. If one of my mates started talking gibberish, or he started speaking another language that I didn't know he, was, he actually knew, I'd certainly think he was perhaps drunk. But so, Peter the man, who just over a month ago had denied Jesus three times, addresses the crowd and presents the first recorded sermon in Acts. Now, Peter was quite a boisterous character. He was always the first to speak, although he often didn't understand. But he's also very passionate. In John 13, we read the following. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And indeed, he did deny him three times. At the moment of Christ's death, Peter lost everything. He lost his rabbi. He failed to live up to his own expectations. He didn't lay down his life. Instead, he held on to it, fearing that he'd lose it. And this was the moment that truly humbled him. Where despair set in and hope faded, he'd failed his master. But the story doesn't remain there. Jesus rises from the grave. He appears to the disciples, opens the scriptures and teaches them. He appears to 500 people. But before he ascends into the clouds, Jesus spent one-on-one time with Peter to care for him and restore him to become the leader of the church and the apostles. And so we read in John 21 from verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And from verse 18, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus asked Peter three questions. Do you love me? And that's the basis of our faith. It's the basis of the apostolic teaching. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the God whose every desire was to restore relationship with us? Do you love the God who came and lived among us, not only to understand and sympathise with us, but also to show us how to live and to love Do you love this Jesus? The one who restores Peter, forgives him, who says, follow me, Peter. And it's this very same Peter that presents the gospel message to the masses and 3,000 people respond and are baptised into the church community that very day. It was these people that were awestruck. But the sentiment wasn't mere awe that you might admire the apostles for their teaching and their work. It also infers a level of fear, of respect. Verse 37 mentions that upon hearing the sermon from Peter, the people were cut to the heart. And in conjunction with the signs and the wonders, which only appear on a grand scale in Scripture when a new revelation occurs, they function as a confirmation of sorts. What you end up with is a community of people who deeply respect and fear the leadership of the apostles. 
And when we fail to heed their teaching, the outcome can be devastating. In Acts 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira fail to take that teaching seriously. And they end up dead. The apostles may not be here now, so we seek to honour the teaching that we do know. And we find it in the Bible and from a tradition of interpretation and a community. When we fail to respect that teaching, we can get cult groups and the results can be quite sad. Think about the snake handling church in the States. They take Mark 16 literally and recent scholarship suggests this section was not actually in the original manuscripts from Mark. It was added later. And so this misinterpretation of the text has caused over 100 deaths over there. So what we need is an unrelenting commitment to the correct interpretation and application of scripture in our lives. The next point to discuss is the idea of fellowship. It's a great word that we love here at church. Often we think about meeting together, perhaps in the hall, might be filling our bellies with coffee and cake while we talk with one another. And then when we get tired, we're going home. And this picture is good. I've enjoyed a lot of this fellowship here at the church and with other congregations. And no doubt you would have heard the Greek term, koinonia. And that's, uh, while inclusive of our idea of fellowship, it's also highly intimate. And the next two verses paint a broader picture of that level of intimacy. From verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Our initial knee-jerk reaction is to suggest this text can't relate to us. I don't have to sell all that I have, do I? There are certain things in our culture that just make us squirm. And this idea of selling possessions is one of them. We want to keep growing our capital, getting more and more comfortable. We want to provide for our spouses and our children. To make sure they can be prosperous and have a bright future. But if we sell our possessions and give the proceeds to those in need, couldn't that potentially jeopardise that? If this is our reaction to downplay the teaching of the apostles in the scriptures, we need to be careful. It should immediately set off alarm bells in our conscience. It's a problem within us that God is wanting to address, and so we need to consider it deeply. Now, the believers had all things in common. Is this a hint towards socialism? Not necessarily. Luke isn't calling for Christians to sell everything. In verse 46, he advises that believers advises us that believers broke bread in their homes. That suggests they still own their homes. What this text seems to indicate is an intimate level of care within the fellowship. If one member is struggling... Others will sell out of their abundance to provide for that need. So the fundamental virtue here is generosity. Earlier I uh, 
I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5. Following the teaching of the apostles, they sold an excess piece of their property and good on them for actively following the application of the uh, apostles' teaching. But they failed to live out the virtue of generosity. They held back a portion of the proceeds and they lied to the spirit, hoping to conceal that portion. But God is all-knowing. Often we fall into the same trap, wanting to firmly grasp things of this world. But we need to let them go and give them to God. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they failed to give God everything. They refused to give him control of their lives, to let him sit in the driver's seat. Don't make that same mistake. And if you find yourself holding on to things too dearly, repent, pray, and ask God's Spirit to lead you and obediently follow his direction. So we see that an unrelenting commitment to fellowship means that we uphold one another and we ensure that each member of our church family is supported. Is everything owned by the church collectively? Not necessarily. Some goods may be, such as the facilities here, but others may not, such as our own homes. Anything that is surplus to our needs and requirements, let's be prepared to give away to further the growth of our church family and this community. This principle goes beyond simple finances and goods. It needs to include our wisdom, experience and our time. We need to be a community that is oriented towards the love and care of our fellow believers and more than that, also to those outside of the community of faith. So from verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all people. So the third and fourth elements from verse 42 focus upon the breaking of bread and of prayers. Both of these can be summarised by the idea of worship and that's what we see in these two verses. How is it the church ought to worship? Well, day by day, indicating regularity, they attended the temple. Now this was a standard practice for Judaism at the time where members of the faith would attend the temple for worship, prayer and teaching. At the time, the Christians still considered the Jews as their brothers and sisters, so they often worshipped in the same facility. And while these meetings sought to bring praise to God and uplift the people, they didn't remain there. Partaking in meals was forbidden in the temple, so they met in their homes to break bread. Some scholars take this to refer to the Lord's table, to communion. Still, others think it's a broader reference to the general idea of hospitality. And eating in the fellowship with other believers. Both of these can be true. Whether specifically eating the bread and wine of communion or not, the believers sought to come together in their homes. The church would come together, but also part into its separate little units. And these meetings... They would remember Christ and encourage and uplift one another in generosity. It was a community filled with great joy 
and love and diversity. So today, we meet regularly. It may not be day to day, but our circumstances are completely different to those of 2,000 years ago. Nonetheless, we still meet regularly. We meet here each Sunday to praise and honour God, but also to hear God's word, to learn and grow in maturity. We spend time in prayer. We opt to partake in communion weekly, while other churches do it less regularly. Irrespective of your position there, the idea is to keep the grace and mercy of Jesus in our mind's eye. And we must remember and seek to follow Jesus in all things. If you're not in a regular Bible study throughout the week, can I encourage you to join one? The regular meeting together of believers is important for our spiritual growth. Joining one another over a meal in our homes, that's why I'm excited about the idea of dinners together. Sadly, I can't join up this time, but if it's run next year. Outside of this program, if you have the gift of hospitality, seek to foster it. Invite a new family over, over for a meal, for lunch or dinner. If hospitality isn't your thing, maybe make plans to go out for dinner with someone else from the church. And so let's continue to meet together regularly. So when the church is unrelentingly committed to these four markers, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, the results can be this. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. If the church continues to honour and follow these four markers, it will continue to grow. The rate may change, may even decline in number, but the spiritual growth and transformation of its members will always continue. And that ultimately is what we're called to do, to make disciples. People who follow Jesus in everything. They're generous with their time and their possessions. They dedicate their lives to honouring what we find in the scriptures. They're prayerful, considerate and seeking to spend time caring fellow believers and we share meals regularly and gather and teach and hear God's word and collectively and over time this results in the transformation of souls a group of people continually praising God and the way this church will operate within these four elements will continue to change as necessary and to that accord if you have any ideas for how you'd like to get involved please reach out to the leadership. Let's partner together, continuing to seek God's glory and grow in Christ-likeness together. And as we do that, we seek to invite and include more people into this culture. We seek new believers to challenge us in our faith, help us to continue to grow in our faith, but also to walk alongside them as they begin their new journey with Christ. We want to extend this community outwards. It's not just for us here. To share and join this community of Jesus' disciples. If you're here this morning and would like to join this community of faith, please come forward during the closing song. The journey of faith, of following Jesus, is a journey that all are invited to. 
And like the 3,000 converts, I am convinced that Jesus makes all the difference in our lives.